you will join me again in John chapter 17 at verses 13 through 19. Give us direction in three things that are needful if we are to live faithful Christian lives in the world. Those three things are this. Christ's joy will be fulfilled in us. This is what Jesus prays in this high priestly prayer of his, that the Father in heaven would fulfill the very joy of Christ in the heart and life of his people. Next is we must have a right understanding of what it means to be hated by the world. All of this is contained in what we're going to read in verses 13 through 19. And then lastly, Jesus prays that we as believers would not be removed from the world, but kept in the world, but kept to be sanctified. All three of those things are found here in these verses. If you'll read them with me. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 13. Let me find it first. I was in Luke. Sorry. Verse 13 says, but now I come to you. Again, this is not Jesus coming to his father in prayer. This is the recognition of Christ being said in the hearing of his disciples that he is about to go and be with the father. He is about to ascend back into heaven after he finishes his work at Calvary. Now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would help us to hear, help us to believe, help us to receive these words from Christ as he prayed them. On behalf of his disciples, we know that he was heard by you. You answered these requests of his for glory, for honor, for resumption of glory. Lord, help us in the same spirit of belief and faith. Not just to study these words, but to take these words unto ourselves and glory in them. That the very joy of Christ may be known by us. That there is a real reason why we are despised as the people of God in this world. And that you are sanctifying us by the word. Further fitting us for the glories of heaven, but especially for service here. 
while you are in wisdom keeping us on this earth to bear witness to Christ, to be salt and light in a world that is increasingly dark. We pray that the Spirit of God would come now alongside of us and be our helper, that he would exalt the things of Christ among us, As we go into a time of communion later in this service, Lord, we pray that it would be a time of real edification for us. That we would be reminded of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Feed us now from these words that he spoke just prior to his giving himself for us. We pray and ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Back in the 14th chapter, which began this sermon, Jesus has reiterated to his disciples that he is leaving. He is leaving. And he will not be back as a suffering Savior. He will be back, but it will be as a ruling and reigning king. But as we read chapters 14, 15, and 16, we can't help but see the confusion, the anxiousness of his disciples. They have given up everything that they had known to walk and to follow him, to serve and minister to him and alongside him. And now he tells them that he is leaving. But he gives them great encouragement as he is informing them that he is leaving by the things that he prays in their hearing to his father. We're going to deal with three of those this morning. And again, I'm going to repeat these because I I want us to, to understand how they relate to each other. These are not isolated things. The joy of Christ, Christians being hated by the world. And sanctified and kept by the Father as we are in the world are all intricately woven together in these three verses. Or these few verses. So as you think of it, are you hated by the world for your profession of faith in Christ? To some degree or another, yes. I suppose that Kevin Woodell will have a whole different experience preaching Christ in Lebanon than we do in Paris, Texas. That's why you need to come and hear what he has to say. Do we experience that to some degree or another? Yes. Do we have real joy in the face of it? Yes, we can. Are we being further prepared and equipped for heaven? Sanctified is the word Jesus used in verse 17. Through all of these things, again, yes, we are. So these things are not to be found in isolation. We're not going from one book of the Bible to another book of the Bible to another book. We're in the same paragraph, same thoughts of Jesus. Just in a few verses, we find all of these things. And so first I want to look with you at verse 13, where Jesus says, Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled In themselves. What things has he spoken in the world? Well, everything that he said broadly could be considered the things that he has spoken in the world. But 
Here, I suppose, Jesus is referencing the things that he has just immediately said. And it's the contemplation of these things that he has just immediately said that brings real joy into the life of believers. So let's run through a few things. Just, we won't back up far. We'll just go to the first verse of chapter 17 where Jesus lifts his eyes into heaven and begins to pray. From that point down to verse 13, remember the disciples are hearing him pray. They're observing, they're witnessing the words he speaks as his eyes are lifted to heaven. What has he prayed to his father? What have they heard? First of all, he reminds them as he prays that the father in heaven has been manifested by himself to them. He has revealed the father to them. If you keep going forward a bit. He reminds them that they have been given to the Son by the Father. Now, imagine if you can, use your your own sanctified imagination as if you were standing by looking at Christ while he is praying these words and to be reminded that you, as a disciple of his, have been given to him by the Father to whom he prays. But there's more. He reminds them through his prayer that they have been given his words and more importantly that they have received his words. And then we have the whole issue of him praying for them at all. He reminds them of that even while he prays. He says, I pray for them in verse 9. He says that he is glorified in them through their obedience and belief. He reminds them that the Father in heaven is going to keep them. Even as, even as Christ had kept them to this point as they had walked with him. And then he reminds them that he will not lose them. Nor will the Father in heaven lose them. They have given themselves to him through repentance and faith. And now they will not. Let me say it differently. Cannot be lost. So now he brings all of this together. In verse 13. These things I speak in the world. Notice the contrast. He has spoken it in the world. So that they. Who, who is Who are they? Not the people of the world. It's his disciples who are standing by listening. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Notice this prayer. Just this one portion of this prayer is enough for us to think, consider, meditate upon for a really long time. This well of the scriptures, just in a few words, has so much in it that we can return here over and over and over again and draw water out of it. That we could have the very joy of Christ fulfilled in us. Look with me at the word fulfilled. I love the literal, the most literal way to translate this word. 
is to cram. That's a good East Texas, East Texan word, right? We're going to cram it full. This is the wording, the thought behind the word is that the joy of Christ, we would be filled to the full with it. Filled to completion. To be thoroughly furnished. To lack nothing. So be reminded as before we move any further. Jesus is praying this for his current disciples. But also when we get to verse 20. He says I do not pray for these alone. But for those also who will believe in me. This is something that Christ has prayed for you and for me. That we would know his joy to the full. That we would live life abundant. So we ask the question. What is the joy of Christ? He says that my joy may be fulfilled in them. What is the joy of Christ that we can be filled with? And I like what John MacArthur says. He says this is not just some kind of arbitrary happiness that Jesus is speaking of. This is not certainly circumstantial happiness. This is not something that we experience in the world that makes us happy. This is something that keeps us happy in Christ despite what we experience in the world. Far different. Those two things are as opposed to one another as any two things could be. This is the joy that Christ speaks of. So what comprised the joy of Christ? I suppose there's dozens and dozens of ways that we could answer that. I'm just going to answer it in three ways. We're going to pull these right out of this prayer so we don't have to go far to find them. Jesus had unbroken communion with his father. And we might say, well, that's to be expected. He was, after all, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Of course, he had unbroken communion with. With his father. But do you realize Jesus is praying that you and I would have the same unbroken communion with the Father as he not in eternity past. We can't go there. But from this point moving forward, because of our relationship to him, we can have the same communion with the Father and the Son through the Spirit that was the foundation of Christ's joy. But second, he delighted in doing the will of his Father. Didn't he say already in this prayer, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. It was his delight. But then also the joy of Christ was what we've spent a couple of weeks talking about. The resumption of glory that he had with the father before he set all of that aside, wrapped himself in flesh and came into this world. So you take all three of those. And you put them together, and this comprises at least a bit of the joy of Christ. To have communion with the Father, to delight in doing His will, and then also to have the joy of eternity with the Father. This is the joy of Christ. It's the joy based upon what Jesus has made known in this prayer. It's the joy that cannot be taken away. This joy that Christ speaks of, there is nothing in this life 
that can steal it away from you. Nothing that befalls you in this life is going to come and remove this joy from your heart. If you are in Christ, you have communion with the Father. You can delight to do His will. And you have the hope of heaven before you always. This is the joy of Christ. Not only can it not be taken away, but it's the joy that steadies us in times of trial. We say real and true and lasting biblical joy is not dependent upon our circumstances. We need to remind ourselves of that often, but then we also know that there are things that come into this world that are real, desperate causes for intense grief. Jesus had just told his disciples that in the 16th chapter, just before he raises his eyes to heaven and begins to pray. So don't miss the connection. We often quote the 33rd verse of chapter 16, not realizing where it's found in this great sermon of Jesus. This is what he says in verse 33 of chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation or trouble. Notice Jesus does not say you might have trouble. He says it is certain you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And then he lifts his eyes to heaven and begins to pray for his disciples who by that news certainly have felt this this crushing load of sorts settle down upon them. Jesus saying, I'm leaving. You're staying. You're going to have trouble. But then he begins to pray for them. Then he begins to build them back up through the things that he prays. We're reminded in the scriptures several places that grief and trouble, trial, tribulation, suffering of various types, of various degrees are on the menu of Christians. But then we have verses like this in Psalm 30 verse 5. Note that verse. The second part of the verse Some of you know, it says weeping may endure for a night. How does it finish? But joy comes in the morning. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Why does it come in the morning? I don't want to press this too hard. I'm not thinking about the 24 hour day so much, but why does the Psalms, why do the Psalms say that joy comes in the morning? Doesn't Jeremiah tell us that the morning, every morning, is when the Lord's mercies are renewed? Every morning when he renews his mercies, we're reminded that his compassions fail not. That he is indeed faithful. I don't know that there's not some significance placed upon The darkness of the night and the bright shining of the sun in the morning. Weeping may endure for for the night or for a night. Night is dark. Darkness in the scripture represents sin. Anytime the effects of sin in the world touch us, we weep. 
because we're reminded of the reality that there is, we are still in a place where the presence of sin is not only real, but it's active. And when we come to that realization, we weep. We're not yet in that place where sin is no more. We're looking for the morning. When the sun will rise, when the darkness is dispersed, when all the effects of sin are driven not only into their place, but out of the place. So we weep while we are touched by the effects of sin in the world, but as we weep, we know that morning will come, and with it brings joy again, the renewal of joy. This is what Jesus prayed for his disciples. Let me ask two questions to Christians. Those who are professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know this joy? Do you know anything of this joy which is the foundation of your life in Christ in this world? And let me not so much ask a question, but just make a statement here to any unbelieving friends in the, in the room. It is no wonder that you know nothing of this kind of joy. It's only found in Christ. The world can't give it to you. You can't muster it up. You can't sustain it. You will lose it often. But for the one who has come in great weakness to Christ, realizing that he or she is nothing outside of him, that everything he or she has is bound up in him, that we can have communion with our Father in heaven, that we can not only have this communion, but we can delight in doing his will and then have the joy of heaven set before us. The more we increasingly understand that, then the more our joy is not dependent upon our circumstances. Don't confuse joy and happiness. They're not the same. You can be joyful in the most grievous trial when happiness is not even on your mind. The reason we can is because of what we have been given in Christ is unchanging. So this is the first part of what we're looking at this morning. Verse 13. I come to you. I'm going into heaven. I'm going to finish. Remember, he has spoken several times just prior to this of the work of Calvary is already having been completed. He says, I'm coming back. These things I have spoken in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And we go from this, this greatest Highest of peaks of knowing the joy of Christ. And immediately we plunge back down into the valley in verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world. So this is the second part. Christians are hated by the world for Christ's sake. If you ever are despised or scorned or mocked for Christ's sake, see that in its right context. 
You're not being mocked, despised, or scorned for who you are. But for who you know. For he who has saved you. We can expect nothing less than to be held in derision by the world. And I, I realize there are, far, there are degrees of this. And admittedly, we know very little of it. Our brothers and sisters scattered around the world, some of them know this keenly. What it, is, what it means to be hated for Christ's sake. But notice the reason. Verse 14, I have given them your word. True disciples of Christ receive the word of God as the word of God. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church one of the reasons why he was so thankful for them. He says, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. This is what differentiates Christians, believers, and unbelievers. Christians are those who have heard the word of God, who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, whose ears have been opened. They hear it. They come Confessing, They come professing. They come repenting of their sin. They come seeing Christ for who he is in the scriptures. Unbelievers, however, do not receive the word of God that way. I read to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, when you heard the word from us, you welcomed it. The word welcome means to be hospitable to it. You didn't cast it aside. You didn't hold it at arm's length, but you let it in. You let it in in truth as it is the word of God. Unbelievers reject the word of God. They hold it through suppression. Remember what Paul says in Romans 1? That the unrighteousness of men, in their unrighteousness, they are suppressing the truth. It's not as if they cannot know it or cannot see it even in creation. Romans chapter 1 says that again. But what Paul says is they are suppressing it. They are holding it down. Jesus says the world here hates them. What is he referencing by using the word world in this way. Many ways we could define it. I'm going to define it like this. The system that in all ways and in all things is opposed to Jesus Christ. And that's all encompassing. The system of thought that in all ways and in all things is opposed to Christ, hates Christians. Why? Because they hated him first. Jesus tells his disciples not only in this prayer, but also in Matthew 10, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end Will be saved. 
Matthew chapter 5, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. After the Beatitudes, some would consider this a Beatitude itself. Jesus says, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What should our reaction be when we experience the scorn of the world for Christ's sake? Jesus says, rejoice. Be exceedingly glad. For your reward in heaven is great. So we have joy and hatred. The joy of Christ can be, can be ours in the world while the world's hatred is upon us. Do you see how those things are put together? The joy of Christ can be fulfilled in us even while the hatred of the world rests upon us for his sake. He says in verse 15 that his prayer is not that the Father would take them out of the world. That, that would be the logical natural inclination of our heart, right? The joy of Christ can be mine in the world. Oh, but wait. The hatred of the world is going to be mine too, so just remove me from that possibility altogether. Jesus says otherwise, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. I think there's a positive and a negative aspect of this keep, keeping that's in mind here. The negative is to be kept from the evil one. And make no mistake, the evil one that Jesus is speaking of here is Satan. The adversary. The one who stands in opposition. The father of lies, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of darkness, the one who holds this world and its system in his sway. While we are in the world, Jesus prays that the father would keep us from the evil one, even as he taught his disciples previously to pray to be delivered from evil. Peter knew this, being one who stood by to hear these words. He wrote 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, speaking of the salvation that is ours. He says, we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. John chapter 10, the end of that chapter, verse 28 and 29. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me. Isn't it interesting? 
When you look at the words of John 17 and you see that Jesus says, Father, they were yours. You gave them to me. But then you begin to see it everywhere, don't you? It's not just here in John 17. It's in John 10. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I love this word, snatch. I don't know if we use it very often anymore, but it's it's in the New King James. I did a little word study on this, what this means. And it literally means to be caught up, taken away, plucked, or pulled up, but by force, not by accident. Jesus is, in essence, saying of himself and his father, no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. What is he saying? There is not a force in this world or 10,000 others that is greater than my father who can take those that he has given me away from me. That includes you. You cannot sin your way out of his keeping. Because as a loving father, he is going to bring chastisement. He's going to bring discipline. He's going to use those around you to make you aware of your sin. And he's going to bring you back. No one is able to snatch them out of his hand. So that's the what we might call the negative aspect of keeping. Being kept from the evil one. Not allowing any thing. Satan himself cannot snatch you out of the Father's hand. Be comforted by that fact. If Satan were to set his affection on you. And I use that word, of course, you're understanding not his loving affection. But his affection to see you destroyed. If he were to set his entire ability, all of his strength upon me and me only, he could not snatch me out of the Father's hand. I might be greatly tried. I might suffer greatly. I might weep. I might do all of these things. But ultimately and finally, my salvation will endure. Because my salvation has absolutely nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with with him. And in essence what Jesus is saying. We cannot be snatched out of the father's hand. Because there is no power great enough to usurp him. Where he rules and reigns. He always rules and reigns. He cannot be dethroned. He will not be dethroned. But there is a positive side to this. The positive side is found in verse 17. This, remember, this keeping. First, negatively expressed from the evil one, positively through sanctification. We are kept by the power of God through sanctification. What does this word mean? It means to be set apart, to be different. Notice that Jesus in verse 17 prays to the Father that this would be the activity of the Father upon his disciples, sanctify them. But he doesn't suppose and he doesn't ask that this would come out of nowhere or happen mysteriously. 
but that it would happen by your truth. Your word is truth. That leads to the question. Some of you are familiar with the question. It's number 36 in the Baptist Catechism, which asks a very simple question. What is sanctification? Here's the answer. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Whereby his elect are renewed in the whole man. Notice that renewed in the whole man after the image of God. But don't miss this part of the answer either. And are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. You want a short, simple definition. What is sanctification? It is the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in my life to die to sin and to live to Christ. To be set apart. How does this happen? By the truth. And let me just say clearly. You and I will not be set apart and further sanctified unto God in this world apart from the scriptures. We must be bathed in the scriptures because it is the word of God alone that renews our minds. It flushes out the perversion of the world and brings in the holiness of God. It removes selfishness in us and it replaces replaces it with a willingness to serve one another and to think more highly of someone else than ourselves and it removes the desire for self-preservation. What does it replace it with? A willingness to die daily for Christ's sake. There is nothing in this world that is going to work those things in me or you apart from the word of God. This is Jesus' prayer for his own Who are in the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Were we we to be like Pilate. And ask what is truth. The answer readily follows. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world. I also have sent them into the world. Let's not miss this point. It is a sanctified believer. Who is prepared to go into the world and minister to it as exampled by his master and a sanctified believer alone. And I understand, and you do as well, that when we come to Christ, there is, in in justification, there is an immediate setting apart. We are Christ's. We're different. What Jesus has in view here and what the scriptures of Paul, the epistles of Paul and Peter and John, what they have in view is the increasing enabling to die more and more to sin and to live more and more to righteousness. This is real and true sanctification. Paul summarizes it in Romans 8 to be renewed, to be made over, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. How far do you have to go? I have a long way. That's why we mustn't distance ourselves 
from the truth. And then Jesus ends this section as we read this last verse, verse 19. We might wonder what he is saying when he says, for their sakes I sanctify myself. Jesus is not here saying, I make myself holy because he has never not been holy. He is not saying, I I distance myself from sin because he has never not been distanced wholly from sin. The word here, I think, is best understood in its most base meaning to be set apart. He says, I set myself apart that they may be sanctified in the truth. What did he set himself apart to? To go to Calvary and to willingly give himself as a sacrifice for sin. I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So here we find these three things. Not in isolation. We're not pulling them from obscurity, bringing them to the table. We're finding them in a few verses. The joy of Christ can be fulfilled in me while I live in the world, experiencing the world's trouble and the world's hatred. It's a reality. And at the same time, the reason this is happening is because the word of God is sanctifying me, washing me, renewing me, cleansing me. How else could we go to a world that hates us, scorns us, derides us and mocks us? How could we go to that same world and lovingly preach Christ if it weren't for being sanctified by the truth? I don't know about you, but my natural response to scorn is to scorn. (laughs) My natural response to being ill-spoken of is to speak ill. My natural response is to give back what I receive. But Christ is here saying through joy and the recognition that it is because of him we are hated in the world. And then our sanctification by the word, by the word we Christians can go into a world that hates us and preach to them the love of Christ. God help us to do that. And we can persevere in joy. I brought this verse up and I'll end with it here this morning out of Hebrews 12. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. We can make application of that verse. We, for the joy set before us, endured our time in the world, despising its shame, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So you think about these things. All of these are secured for us by the shed blood and the broken body of Christ, which we're going to commemorate with the supper. If you'll pray with me, and I'm going to ask the men to come. Father, we thank you. For these words, 
We thank you, Lord, for what you have made known to us. How we can have real abiding joy, even the joy of Christ in this world that is filled with trouble and hatred for the things of Christ. We thank you for sanctifying us by the truth. For giving us an appetite for your word. Lord, would you increase it? Would you cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness more than we currently do? How apathetic we are. How often our love is cold, lukewarm. Father, would you revive us again? Because of your mercy, because of your love for us. But more importantly, because of your love for your own son. In whom all of our lives are bound up in him. And in him all all things we are to give, in all things we are to give him preeminence. So we look to this time of communion. Father, we pray that you would bless it. That this ordinance that you have given unto your church, that you would use it for our good, for our building up, and for the furthering of the gospel among us. We pray and ask it in Christ's name.